Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. Assalamualaikum brothers and sisters. I'd like to welcome you here to another Friday Circle. Uh, today we have Brother Safraz, um, who's been discussing planet Earth and Amana, or a trust from Allah SWT. As we're all aware, we've heard many times about the environment, uh, about the world around us and uh, how it's been polluted, um, how we should be recycling, um, how we are in a situation um, which is uh, creating lots of problems with climate change, uh, the weather patterns changing, floods, earthquakes, tsunamis, and the list goes on. Um, and as you know, over the last few years, we've seen even children rising up against uh, the capitalist states and saying to them uh, um, that they should take heed of uh, what they're doing to the planet, like Greta Thunberg as an example. Um, but however, we see the continuous pillaging and raping of the earth. Uh, it continues as we sit here today and uh, it has uh, no limit to, uh, to its uh, pillaging of this earth. And this system that they call capitalism or secularism is what drives this uh, through the production of unneeded items, um, through the waste uh, products that are made and then uh, buried into the ground, and through the pollution in the actual manufacture process of these items. Um, however, we see that Allah SWT has guided us in terms of the world around us and shown us how in nature Allah SWT has made a system uh, which is on a different paradigm shift to the way that we produce today in that Allah SWT has produced a system that works in low temperatures, um, uh, uses products which are not harsh, uh, but products which are um, um, easy to make in nature. And Allah SWT shows us uh, through the production of uh, uh, chemicals that plants make um, and the system around us, that these things can be recycled and used for other purposes. So Allah Subhanahu has made this world for us, and uh, He's given it to us as a trust. But yet we're failing throughout the world um, under the system that controls the world at the moment. So Inshallah, hopefully, Brother Safraz can give us an idea of how we can actually deal with this situation um, and uh, how we must put a stop to this continuous uh, destruction of the earth and the planet that Allah Subhanahu gave us as a trust. Uh, it's a difficult subject because it's so broad and it's a complex um, subject and it doesn't appropriate to give very high level or like soundbite type solutions, simplistic solutions to what is a multifaceted problem. Because many people have spoken about this whole question of, you know, the climate, uh, global warming, how much of that is happening as a result of human activity, especially in the post-industrial age versus the natural cycles of uh, temperature shift and carbon dioxide levels going up and down, which has have been observed over the last, you know, many, many thousands of years. So this is a very controversial issue with some people tend to be the right wing uh, saying, you know, this is all made up by 
you know, lefties and, you know, uh, people who just want to make a name for themselves. Uh, and there is no such thing as most of the warming is happening in a more cyclical way. And had humans never come onto the earth, we'd probably be at the same sort of level that we currently are. So that's one sort of denial end of the spectrum. And then you've got the other sort of like over fear mongering uh, types, you know, Greenpeace, you know, over exact, you know, exaggerating perhaps um, the, the claim that, you know, there is a uh, catastrophe, you know, coming right around the corner unless we act um, very, very um, quickly and in a very radical way. So it's not my aim today to sort of like settle that debate because obviously I'm I'm not a scientist, I'm not a weather scientist, I'm not a geologist or a uh, ex these matters. I'm coming more from a uh, economics background and from an Islamic uh, economics in particular, where many solutions have been uh, given to us by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala uh, in terms of how to manage the environment. So I just wanted to sort of like throw some ideas out there to show what some of the drivers are for you know the type of uh, events that we're seeing uh, generally under the umbrella of climate change or global warming, uh, and how much uh, of that could possibly be driven by the way we live our lives, i.e. by the system that we have chosen for, for well, not that uh, as Muslims we haven't really chosen the system, it's been imposed upon us by political force, but uh, for, for many people in the world, it is a system that they have chosen. So I just wanted to expose some of the factors which drive a lot of this type of degradation of the environment, this move towards uh, greater and greater um, loss of biodiversity, um, the sort of acidification of the oceans, which are affecting the very delicate food chain that we have uh, and we rely on as human beings. Um, and and some of the other things like uh, the, the warming, the the, the fact that it's uh, causing um, um, the sea levels to rise and all the other sort of uh, key uh, indicators of there being a problem which has to uh, be at least uh, assessed and some kind of solution brought to bear upon these problems. So if I could just start with um, just touching on from what the brother introduced in terms of the Islamic perspective on the environment. Just to bring some evidences into the into the discussion. So, uh, one hadith by Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, where he sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, "The world is a green and pleasant thing. Allah has made you stewards of it, and look at how you behave." And in another um, narration, he said, "The earth is green and beautiful, and Allah has appointed you his stewards over it." Um, and finally, there's another one. Uh, prevention of damage and corruption before it occurs is better than later treatment. Um, so, sorry, that's not the hadith. That's my commentary on those um, hadith. But the hadith itself is, there shall be no damage and no infliction of damage. So this just sort of sums up in a very broad sense the way we are responsible for the environment. It's a trust by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given to us, just like is our, our body, our physical bodies, but the environment, the animals, the, the water, the air quality, and so forth, these are all things that we are uh, uh, asked to um, take care of uh, as stewards, as guardians um, over the trust that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon us. So 
we can't just say in Islam that, you know, the environment is just, you know, we just leave it and, you know, it's not really our problem. No, it's very much our problem and it's something that we are responsible for. So I've just touched a little bit on, you know, um, some of the sort of markers of uh, environmental uh, climate change and, you know, um, global warming as such. So one good model to start with was a model put forward in 2009 by a not-for-profit research institute based in Sweden called the Stockholm Resilience Center. What they did is they devised a, it's like a, a pie chart of nine sort of like key areas where um, the world's ecosystem was moving towards uh, the red zone. So these are things like some of them you will, uh, lay people will, have rec will recognize some of them. So for example, ozone depletion, uh, warming, uh, freshwater depletion, land use, um, biodiversity loss, another one which is very um, worrying when you consider the rate at which the Amazon is being chopped down and many, many species are going extinct. You know, if you look, I mean, I'm not going to dazzle with numbers. I mean, that's not really the point, and we don't really have time for that. But if you want to look at some of these terms online, you will see what is actually happening. And the, the, cost, the cost of this is, is huge. I mean, just to give an example for biodiversity loss, there was a species of frog called the gastric brooding frog. And what this uh, particular species of frog used to do, it used to ingest its young, its, its um, the, the tadpoles or whatever phase they were in, or in, in development, into its stomach. And as we know, the stomach is a place where um, acid is very strong because it's needed to break down the food. And what this f frog was able to do was to switch off the production of acid, stomach acid, to uh, so that the child, the uh, it's um, during its gestation period, the uh, tadpoles were unharmed. Now that would have been an invaluable insight to the medical industry, where things like uh, gastric ulcers, where you know uh, drugs are used to treat um, uh, ulcers which occur in the stomach, and obviously these drugs block the production and secretion of acid uh, so as to protect the stomach lining from the, uh, you know, burning effects of the acid. So, you know, that's just one example of a species that we will never be able to study because of biodiversity loss, because we've destroyed the environment that this organism was living in and had been living in successfully for many, many thousands of years from human activity. So some of this is not contestable. I mean, some of it you could argue is contestable, but the rate at which biodiversity loss is happening uh, is 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 so um, scary and it's unprecedented in the history of the human race. So you can't just say, oh, this is just something that would have happened anyway. It's clearly something which is uh, related to the way we use the world's uh, resources, the way we deforest trees in the Amazon and all the other spillover effects of that. Uh, so, for example, you know, we're living through the worst pandemic since the Spanish flu in the 1918 um, uh, Spanish flu. Uh, and that's partly because of the way we do farming, the way we uh, battery farming and keeping these uh, animals in cooped up conditions whereby, you know, they, um, they, they mix with 
you know, their feces and, you know, get contamination with other species like the Chinese wet markets, which are also uh, where bats migrate to when their natural habitat is destroyed through deforestation, as we've seen in the Amazon rainforest recently, where, you know, they've got no way to, you know, you, you destroy their habitat and you're going to get, uh, you're disturbing the, the habitat of these delicate species. Now, bats are a notorious case in point because they are a reservoir of uh, viruses, which are what are called zoonotic viruses, which are very easy to uh, jump across the humans because uh, that's what a zoonotic virus is. It's, a, it's an animal virus which can easily move, mutate and move and infect human beings. So bats as mammals, you know, not too uh, unrelated to um, the human uh, DNA, uh, are able to transfer a lot of these viruses. And when their habitat is destroyed, then they will come into contact uh, with other species. And that combination creates the, a poisonous cocktail where a lot of these novel flu-type viruses can emerge, as was the case with the coronavirus. And this has happened before. This swine flu about 10 or 11 years ago, for those of you who remember, was caused when uh, pigs were farmed in very, very uh, uh, bad conditions uh, with very, very little space to maneuver. And that, that festering environment has created a lot of these diseases as well. Now, that doesn't mean that under an Islamic system of management, you know, uh, plagues and uh, epidemics uh, cannot happen because they have happened. Because we know even in the time of the, the companions, there were many, the plague of Amwas uh, was, was a plague which killed many, many Sahaba in, in, um, uh, in the area of Syria, uh, what is now Syria. And, you know, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about you know, sometimes these uh, things can happen just to give you some uh, insight into that. Um, um, I'll, I'll come back to that, but there's some evidences which talk about um, uh, when Allah sends some disasters upon uh, people for various reasons to remind them uh, to return to the straight path or to punish those who saw evil and remain silent. So we know that you know, we're not going to say every single uh, epidemic or uh, case of swine flu or, you know, um, um, Spanish flu or whatever is due to the way capitalism uh, farms resources in a very responsible way. That's just not accurate. But to, to a large extent, it is uh, a very significant factor to uh, irresponsible economics and irresponsible interaction the environment, which leads to a lot of these uh, avoidable pandemics from springing into existence. So the crux of my message today is to show capitalism has a imperative for growth. It's a bit like, you know, it's a law. It's, it's just bound by this law. It's a straight jacket around capitalism that it has to keep growing. So it's a bit like, you know, the law of gravity. You know, you, you jump if you jumped out of a window, the law of gravity would put this imperative imperative uh, upon you to come to the ground because that's just the law of, of gravity. So similarly, capitalism has this imperative to keep growing. And there's various 
I'm coming from an Islamic point of view and saying, well, the reason why there is this environmental problem under a system of capitalist management, and there isn't this problem under a system of economics management under an Islamic uh, system, I need to explain what the imperatives are under capitalism and why they will not be there under an Islamic system of management, because otherwise I'm just saying, oh, yes, capitalism is really bad because it creates these, uh, this growth imperative. And remember, what's the link between growth? So more growth, more requirement for resources, more CO2 production, more global warming, more greenhouse gases being produced, which creates you know, more pollution, more uh, negative effects on people's health in terms of you know, the breathing issues and bronchitis and you know, all of the uh, uh, lung cancers and all of those things. Um, and not to mention you know, um, the, the effect it has on extreme weather events. So warming generally, global warming, because of the production of all of these uh, gases, whether it's um, methane or, or CO2, uh, it does create this warming effect because it traps. They, they, there's a reason why they call greenhouse gases because they trap the, the heat from the sun as it enters our atmosphere and it prevents it from going back out because it's been trapped in by these gases. And you know the, the burning of fossil fuels contributes significantly to um, the uh, tr uh, production of CO2. So that's. And the, the unprecedented rate that capitalism demands of economies to keep growing because they are unable to not grow. They have to keep growing at a certain rate. Otherwise, the whole system collapses upon itself. It implodes. And sort of an analogy to take uh, from, from a Hollywood movie uh, to make it clear. I don't know if uh, viewers have seen that there was a movie, uh, I think it was about... Um, 15 years ago now is called Speed. And in this movie, there's a actor, Keanu Reeves, and he's on, a, he's on board a, um, a, uh, a bus, and the bus has got a, a bomb underneath, and the bomb will go off when the bus drops below 50 miles per hour. So um, his job is to obviously keep the bus above that speed and then try to safely get the passengers off the bus before it uh, goes into, um, you know, uh, it, before it blows up. So, you know, that's similar a metaphor to use against the capitalist economic system, because unlike the Islamic economic system, which doesn't have this type of growth imperative, they have to keep growing their economy. And there's various reasons which are peculiar to capitalism for that. So one uh, of those reasons is, uh, and re remember, just follow the thread here. So what I'm saying, is economic growth, unabated economic growth, aggressive economic growth, burns a lot of fossil fuels, uh, creates a lot of carbon dioxide, which then creates greenhouse gases, which creates global warming, which creates all of these effects, you know, uh, def um, you know biodiversity loss, extreme weather events, you know, um, uh, floods, droughts, storms, you know, all of those things. Um, so we need to go back to the root of the issue here, which is why is there such an imperative for growth? And so one of them is the monetary system that is in use in capitalist economic systems. So you have a uh, what's called a, a money system, which is based on interest. So according to this monetary system, there is an imperative to grow the money supply because 
there's never enough money in the system to pay the debt because the debt accrues interest. So this forces the growth in the money supply. Enough money to pay the interest on the current debt, and that in itself um, raises um, the need for there to be growth. Because without growth, you can't just grow the money supply without there being the corresponding growth in the growth of goods and services, which is what economic growth is all about. Because otherwise, you will just get too much money and not enough goods. Because And that, as we know, will create inflation, and it will create hyperinflation if it's not kept in check. And the problems with hyperinflation you've seen um, over the years, you know, in Germany during the Weimar Republic, you know, re more recently in Zimbabwe, um, you've seen this problem. So, you know, hyperinflation is like a very, very scary thing because the whole economy comes to a grounding halt and it needs to be bailed out um, by someone like the IMF, which is what typically happens. So that's one driver for this economic growth, which we don't have in the Islamic economic system because it's not a debt-based uh, model. It's it's what's called equity finance model. So what that means is if you're a businessman or you're looking to start a business, you don't go to the bank in a conventional uh, financial services uh, sense. Rather, you go to a partner who's got capital, who's got savings, who wants to invest the money. And then you create this partnership model. So there is a when Islam closes the door on one evil, it doesn't leave and then it opens another door, it gives an alternative. So that's how we would not have that particular driver for economic growth. What what else is there? Well, one of the other drivers is um, the dirty little secret about uh, sovereign debt or the government's uh, borrowing. So. Governments, as we know, borrow borrow lots and lots of money. I mean, to deal with the COVID crisis, you know, the uh, Treasury has, you know, borrowed so much money uh, to the tune of, you know, many, many billions more than it would normally borrow uh, in any uh, financial year. And one of the tricks of dealing with that uh, is to inflate away the debt by creating more money. Because you, what you do by creating more money, you create inflation, and that inflates away the debt burden. And governments love to do that, and that creates again a need for growth because you can't just create more money without there being a corresponding growth in the production of goods and services. So that's also another driver which we wouldn't really have in the Islamic economic system because we don't have this imperative for uh, governments going into debt and issuing bonds as they do in the capitalist economic system. Um, one other one, just quickly, um, from a consumer perspective, from a uh, that's more like taking, uh, taking into account the sort of like um, the government and the financial sector, the banks. But what about people like us? Well, consumerism is another driver for unabated economic production because about the turn of the century, uh, people stopped buying uh, at the rate at which capitalist, uh, the capitalists wanted people to buy at to keep this uh, money-making system afloat. So they had to devise new ways of convincing people to part with their money because people used to buy things on the basis of need. So a very clever man, he was actually the nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud, the psychologist, the one who uh, who's quite well known. His name was Edward Barnes, and he... 
he was uh, actually approached by the tobacco industry and they said, look, this uh, product of ours, tobacco, is not being taken by women because there's a taboo against women smoking. So, you know, you need to come up with a way to make it socially acceptable for women to smoke because we want to um, sell, you know, half of the market is unavailable for us because of the social taboo. And from a business point of view, you know, it made sense to get, you know, the best psychologist in the land um, to come up with a plan. And he came up with a very clever plan. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to go into the details, but if you want to uh, Google this, you can Google Torches of Freedom uh, and Edward Barney's very clever uh, tech uh, sort of plan that he concocted in order to sort of like get women to start smoking. And the idea of that was a turning point in the psychology of the consumer because now people were buying things on the basis of how they felt or, um, you know, their, their desire rather than their need. It's like uh, a want is, I'm going to buy this, in this case, symbolized an emancipation from a male uh, patriarchal society which is telling women how they should live their lives. So women took the cigarette as a symbol of emancipation, of liberation, and then suddenly it made her feel good. So this was the transition between buying things because of what you need to buying things because of the way they make you feel. And consumerism was born. And because you, there's no end to that game of consumerism, you keep on buying things because... If you're depressed, you just feel, think you're going to buy the, the latest gadget and it's going to make you feel good. And the, the production machine ramps up 20 more notches as a result of things like that. So that's consumerism. And then there's other sort of related things like conspicuous consumption, which is where you're actually consumerism is more to do with yourself, how it makes you feel. And conspicuous consumption is when you buy things for social status. So, you know, you're you're buying something which is way beyond what you need, but just because it sort of like symbolizes your status in society. It's a big um, driver on more and more growth because you're constantly keeping up with the Joneses. So you've got this escalation and this competition, which means you're going to buy, keep on buying things, thinking that this elevates your status in society. And again, in Islam, you don't have that driver because we know in Islam, uh, you know, this is not the way to differentiate between people. People are not um, valued according to, you know, the the size of their bank balance or their, the number of properties they have. It's more to do with their taqwa and their, their uh, remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and their uh, trustworthiness and so on. So this is not, again, going to be there in the Islamic economic system. So just sort of like, those are just some of the, um, and just another one, again, a bit technical, this one, but Deflation is where the economy starts to go down, prices start to go down. And again, it's like the, the movie analogy, the economy will blow up. It can't deal with deflation. And again, if you're interested, you can just go and read about Google, you know, the dangers of deflation. Policymakers will avoid that, you know, uh, they won't go anywhere near deflation because it's considered the, the biggest death spiral in any economy once you start. And Japan had that throughout the 1990s. If you're interested, you can go and look at the lost decade in Japan, how they had deflation. And it took it took a very, very long time. And that's why they called it the lost generation, because it took a generation to, to get anywhere near dealing with that problem. So again, unless you have economic growth, 
if you have economic contraction, you get deflation, and that really, really uh, destroys the economy, the capitalist system. So, again, to avoid that, they have to keep driving production, which then damages the environment. And again, you don't have that problem because in Islam, you have a gold and silver based currency, which in, by its nature is deflationary. Um, so again, this is you know a bit technical, but just uh, take it take it at face value, and you can obviously research that more in, in your own time if you're interested. So, what about the solutions that um, capitalists uh, offer to try to deal with this, which is effectively skirting around the edge? They're not really uh, going to the heart of the issue because obviously some of these things are taboo topics. You know, so it's really up to us as people who understand. Uh, Islam and, and and wish to carry the dawah to really expose these solutions and they're really just darting around the edges of the issue. It's just to really run through them, um, degrowth uh, again that doesn't make sense because that causes deflation. So uh, that's not really an option. Um, then they'll, the deniers will say, well, it's too many people in the earth. You know, there's overpopulation. That's the problem. That's why the environment's going down. But just to give you some stats to sort of counter that. Uh, if you look at China, uh, from the time it embraced capitalism in 1978, uh, if you look at the period from 1978 to 2014, the population fell from 22% of the world's population to around 18%. But its growth in the world's GDP rose significantly from 3% to 20%. So you see a decoupling between um, growth, economic growth, and the number of people. So that's really a red herring. It's not really the cause behind it. Again, it's just like living in denial by just blaming anything other than the system. Um, so some of the other options are green energy. Again, it's not really uh, a very uh, viable uh, option to replace uh, fossil fuel-based uh, energy sources because it's very inefficient and there just isn't enough of it to give us the level of energy we need to drive this economic monster to where it's it's heading on the basis of the current tra trajectory. So, you know, cost issues, efficiency issues, I mean, solar panels, they only absorb a small fraction of the sun rays, um, storage issues in terms of battery capacity um, and reliability. So all of these things are the reason why um, and cost as well. I mean, governments who try to adopt green, they have to subsidize green energy significantly. So there's a huge cost as well. So it's not really a viable replacement. It's something which can just at best supplement the current uh, energy system. So that's another sort of like off the shelf thing. It's not really going to be the, um, the, the real savior here uh, because it doesn't really address the root of the issue. Um, there's other things like carbon trading again. Very costly to carbon trading is the idea that companies are assigned a quota limit to how much carbon they can produce. And then if they want to pollute more than their quota, they have to buy quota from other companies. Again, how do you monitor? How do you police it? You know, there's so many loopholes. It's very easy to uh, duck below the radar and, you know, uh, break the system. So, you know, that's not really, that's just one of those things that help you feel good. It's a feel good tool rather than a viable real solution that goes to the heart of the problem. And then you've got other things like carbon capture and storage. Again, this is the idea of sucking the carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it underground. Uh, other than the cost issues around that, 
you know, what happens when that carbon which is stored under the ground is then uh, disturbed through some kind of natural disaster, an earthquake, you know, that will cause huge um, reintroduction of carbon into the atmosphere. And the only other option then is nuclear. And again, the fear of nuclear storage and, you know, uh, radioactive decay and the danger of leaking uh, isotopes and things like that mean that it's not really uh, a viable and safe alternative. Uh, even if you look at some of the proposed alternatives to uranium, like thorium reactors, they are still relying on um, uh, nuclear material uh, to initiate the chain reaction to start the thorium reactor process. And also, they are also radioactive for hundreds of years, better than uranium, but still for hundreds of years. And the UN are talking about the dangers of this. I mean, there was um, something I was reading about, spoke about how they're thinking of burying it under places and putting signs up in every language known to the world, just in case in the future somebody stumbles across that and doesn't realize the danger. And so they're talking about putting that in every language known to man with pictures of danger, do not go here. So obviously the experts know about the danger of nuclear. So there's no real alternative out there. The only real option is for uh, the world to adopt a system of economic management, which takes into account the environment as an integral part. Uh, as we understand in Islam, this is the, the modus operandi of Islam, how uh, economics has to work um, in tandem with the economy, with the environment, sorry, and the system has to be sustainable. So sort of like by, by bringing these aspects of capitalism out, it's, it's implied that Islam is free from these defects. And, you know, I've just touched uh, very briefly on how it is. So how then, just to conclude, does Islam actually deal with this? Other than saying that it doesn't have the problems, it doesn't have the drivers of um, unrelenting economic growth that causes, you know, CO2 emissions and environmental degradation. It doesn't have those drivers. It not only doesn't have those drivers, but it proactively has rules to safeguard the environment. Very quickly, um, there's, uh, these rules are broken down into sort of like three sort of areas. You've got um, solutions at the sort of like two areas, rather. Solutions at the individual level, so in terms of how we should be careful about the way we use the environment, and solutions at the system level, in terms of the government level. So just very, very quickly, because I appreciate time is uh, catching up on us. Um, in Islam is divided into three types. So you've got private property, public property, and state property. One of the key things about the polluting industries that we see in the West is that these are public utilities. So oil and gas, electricity, you know, very, very high carbon intensive operations, you know, electricity production, you know, the amount of coal that is burned in order to generate the steam to produce the electricity is, is focus. Um, and then you've got uh, oil oil production, and obviously uh, there's a lot of uh, um, waste and you know uh, poisonous gases into the atmosphere because these are profit making businesses. You know the companies that produce the public utilities are there for profit. You know when BP had that huge oil spill uh, a few years ago. 
if you look at the reports that came afterwards, it's because they were cutting costs. They weren't testing the systems. They weren't updating the software. They weren't doing rehearsals of, you know, what would happen if we had a disaster because it doesn't make profit. It's not what the wants to see. So in Islam, that is all under the umbrella of public property and is managed by the state, not for profit on, be, on the behalf of the people. It's a trust of the people that is managed by the state. So that's public property. So you're not going to get this cutting of corners to damage the environment just so that you can get the electricity produced uh, in a lowest cost basis. It's going to be done in a responsible way. So that's just one example. Um, in terms of the state, it has um, various judges. One of the judges is called a Qadi Hispa. And what this judge does, it depth, he judges disputes between individuals and the public good. So if somebody's causing pollution, somebody's factory is you know, polluting the sea, then the Qadi Hispa will get involved and impose uh, fines or put that person out of business unless they do a U-turn on what they're doing. And these judges are not bought. It's not like lobbyists who are in the system where sort of controls everything, controls government, controls the legal process, you know, it's the revolving door. You don't have any of that. You know, the system system the systemic factors which prevent this from happening at multiple levels. Uh, so that's uh, how the judges would intervene in terms of those people who are doing something unsavory in terms of the environment. And just sort of finishing off with certain individual um, uh, rules and, and uh, regulations which come to address some of the areas. So just very, very quickly, um, in Surat al-Araf, verse 31, regarding the uh, avoiding the excessive consumption of resources, you know, this idea of, you know, I, I need a new phone or I need you know, another pair of trainers because the fashion has changed. When you don't really need these things, you know, this... Uh, what they call in the terminology perceived obsolescence. You perceive what you have to be no good, even though it is perfectly uh, fine. Um, and also, you know, planned obsolescence where they actually design uh, your product to break after a certain number of years um, so that you buy another one, like your iPhone gets an update and the battery or your Samsung, because like, I have a Samsung, every time I get, get, I get a security update and the battery life gets worse and worse. And, you know, that's pretty much by design. It's called planned obsolescence because they want you to buy another one. So overconsumption in this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O children of Allah, the translation of the meaning, uh, eat and drink, but waste not by excess, for Allah loves not the wasters. So that's in terms of overconsumption. Um, how about destruction of the biosphere? What we saw in Brazil, the destruction of the rainforest. Um, so uh, Abdullah ibn Abashi reported that Prophet Muhammad said, he who cuts a lot tree without justification, Allah will send him to hellfire. Now, a lot tree was a very uh, important tree in the desert. And obviously, this is a, an evidence which talks about preserving the environment, because as we know, trees are very important to suck CO2 out of the environment and create that healthy balance in terms of um, the um, carbon cycle. Um, Protecting biodiversity, again, we spoke about biodiversity being, you know, destroyed at the rate of knots under the capitalist system. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the translation meaning, Surah Al-Anam, verse 6, uh, Surah 6, verse 38. There is no creature on earth or bird that flies with its wings, but they are communities like you. So 
creating respect for animal, the animal kingdom. And we know many examples how Umar who would um, build roads for the animals to protect them when they would walk the mountains to, for fear of being accountable for them. Um, rewards for planting trees, again, Hadith. Uh, Anas also reported that Prophet Muhammad said, if a Muslim plants a tree or sows seeds and then a bird or a person or animal eats from it, it is regarded as a charitable gift, sadaqah. So again, the reward of planting trees, which we know are very good for sustainability in terms of the environment. Um, again, consumerism we spoke about, um, asked about what the Prophet used to do. The Prophet's wife, Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, said he used to repair his shoes, sew his clothes, and he used to do such housework done by an average person. So again, you know, not excessively buying things which are not needed, because obviously every time you know that extra pair of jeans gets created, you know, it creates this negative externality. You know, there's another big fancy term there. The spillover effects of economic activity, which uh, affect innocent people. So, you know, whenever I go into a shop and I see this, you know, so many clothes being produced, and I think, you know, th this cost, I am bearing this cost, even though I didn't pay for the material in the factory, the, the spillover, the, the, um, the externality, uh, which is the correct term to use from an economic uh, theory perspective. The, the negative externality of that is huge. You know, um, more carbon is being produced than is necessary because of this excessive uh, production. Um, just finish off with the quality of the air again. Um, uh, Rasulullah said, of any disease outbreak that strikes an area, do not enter in there. And if the disease befalls the region and you are there, do not flee from it. So a kind of sort of lockdown sort of uh, hadith here, which seeks to protect the um, environment and the air quality from people um, who may be infected by something, and also the evidence which encourages you to, you know, when you sneeze, you know, not to blow your sneeze and your disease onto other people. So hopefully this will have given you some insight into how Islam has a view towards the environment, what some of the ways in which it tries to protect the environment and how it doesn't have a lot of the drivers which drive the sort of decadent behavior towards the environment that we see under a system of capitalist management. And again, there's, there's lots of detail there. There's, you can't really, I can't do a topic like this in half an hour other than to just throw some feelers out there. And, you know, I hope it's been um, something that you can take something from and contribute to that debate which um, will no doubt come back into the forefront after you know coronavirus is uh, yesterday's news uh, as it was uh, along with brexit just before coronavirus around the uh, imminent uh, abyss into which uh, they say we are all heading if we do not take drastic action and, and sort of the take home is within the capitalist paradigm there is no real action because even if you talk about changing the rules money talks the real capitalists they won't let the change happen you know that's the, the nation hijacked system 
you can't change it until you really root at the core and, and develop and establish a very, very independent system, a very system which is free of the crony, hegemonic uh, rulers that are imposed upon the Muslim world. And that has to be run under the system of Islam, under a system which uh, safeguards the environment and humanity. So I think at that point, I will finish um, and open the floor to any questions or comments that the brothers may have. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salam ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Jazakallah khair, Brother Sakhbar. Alhamdulillah, that's a very good uh, explanation of uh, what's going on and what Islam deals with the situation. Um, Inshallah, we'll open up the floor uh, to the brothers and sisters if you'd like to um, ask any questions or if you have any comments, uh, please don't do so in the chat section. Um, Inshallah, we've got one question, first of all, um, from Brother Dusty, uh, who says, how would the state deal with the plastic waste problem and plastic going into the food chain? Oh. Very simply, you know, the, the, the case in terms of uh, what sort of uh, materials you would use and where those materials, there needs to be a very uh, policy in terms of ensuring they don't just get destroyed or, or just thrown into the sea or in, a, in, a, in any way affect, um, you know, wildlife the way that happens in the capitalist system where, you know, these things are just dumped. Um, and there is no real regulation because at the end of the day, the rich who write the regulation, they don't do these things because they have their own water supplies. They can holiday in places where they don't have to see all of this degradation. And, you know, um, that's why they... It's like... Um, I personally think a more responsible approach would be to use bottles and you know maybe people will say well we don't use bottles because people never return the bottles or you know uh, that's why they use cheap plastics but why the question is why people don't return bottles is because they don't have this concept of you know um responsibility an islamic society will be a lot more responsible and i'm sure uh if we adopted the system of bottles i remember when i first went to pakistan i told, you know, when I, you have to go and give it back to the store because, so they can reuse it, you know, and I thought, oh, because I was coming from a Western capitalist perspective where, you know, I don't really care about the environment, but the people I was with, they were saying, no, this is not good to waste things and, you know, it, it can be recycled. So I'm sure it'll be a mixture of using approaches like that where, whereby you have a society which is not, you know, um, hedonistic like you have in the sort of a secular capitalist mindset which is just i don't really care i'm going to throw this plastic away i'm, I'm not really directly affected by it and you can have a much more responsible citizenry, citizenry whereby those type of approaches can work as well and if you do have to use a bottle for whatever reason then as long as it is um, disposed of in a safe way away from any way of contaminating food chains and things like that, then I think that would probably be the way to go. Um, 
Uh, my apologies, brothers and sisters. Um, unfortunately, we uh, lost a little bit of the sound of the video just for a second or two there. Um, I think we just getting a little bit of interference on the net. Um, Charlotte, if you have any further questions or comments, you'd like to write them in the chat section. Um, and uh, so, so Faraz, you mentioned during your talk that um, there's an excuse that's always been used that uh, there's too many people on the earth. So uh, the overpopulation is a problem. Um, and this is something that I'm sure all of us have heard uh, from a young age. Um, and uh, this actually builds the notion of uh, uh, res uh, restricted uh, resources and the issue of supply and demand as well. Um, but uh, as we know, um, we as human beings have been on the earth for uh, much more than 2000 years, maybe over two millennia. Um, from the time of Adam and Islam till today, um, I've not seen anywhere in the world um, that resources have been uh, completely um, used up. In other words, Allah SWT has given us uh, a huge amount of resources that continues uh, as a rahmah to us, as a mercy to us, uh, in terms of for our use, as Allah SWT told us, you know, made the earth for our use. Um, but uh, how do we combat this whole understanding of um, uh, overpopulation and not enough resources? I mean, I touched on it briefly in the talk, but the statistic around China, that China's um, population has shrunk uh, as a percentage of the overall world's population, but its growth, its economic uh, production has skyrocketed. And we know that it's now the biggest polluter um, and user of resources, um, second only to the United States. So I think... As the as the you know the the elephant in the room, the the uh, the unspoken uh, truth to the matter is it's actually an uh, an issue of overconsumption. You look at how much resource, say, somebody in America uses compared to the third world. You take anything. You take a cotton. You take plastic. You take water. It will be like several several times over the amount that is used by somebody in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's really the issue. You've got a gluttonous first world and a starving third world. It's not the resources. This is like a smokescreen to the issue. The world can sustain a lot more people uh, than it currently is. And I, I remember looking at some statistics about population density, that um, if the whole world was living at the population density of New York City, it could fit within Texas and half of Oklahoma. You know, that's the reality of overpopulation. The world is not overpopulated. I mean, look at this country, for example, only something like 8% is urban. Most of it is just rural. It's just countryside. You know, um, the whole world, I think, in one advert, I remember many years ago, they said the whole world could fit onto the Isle of Wight, you know, which is a tiny drop. You know, it's, it's not even 0.1% of the Earth's land mass. The whole world could sit there. And if you want to get more uh, closer to the Muslim world, something like Gaza, where, which is like the biggest open prison in the whole world, if the whole living at the population density of Gaza, they could probably fit within one of the smaller states of the U.S., you know, they probably fit within Israel. You know, um, that, that's, that's the reality. And that's the myth 
of there's too many people. There aren't too many people. There is enough, enough resources, the way the resources are being used, the way water is being used, the way um, um, you know, factory farming and the way you know, overproduction of cotton and land reused for, you know, uh, like in Brazil, being reused for uh, biofuels, where half the world's population are, are living under the poverty line. You know, that's the issue. That's the real issue that needs to be brought out, not that there's too many people. There's um, a question by from Brother Frederick Jonathan. Um, he says, Salam, the coming mm -hmm. future, Hilafa may still want to produce new and improved goods such as mobiles, um, mobiles, laptops, etc. Would this still not be a problem and create a culture of consumerism? No, because I think uh, we have various evidences which talk about the need for spending because Islam isn't a, um, it's the balance between being excessive and being miserly and being niggardly. So no, not being spendthrift and not being niggardly, it's the station between the two. And there's a verse in the Quran, I, I forget the reference, which actually mentions that point specifically. So spending is good because spending is somebody's income because you're spending your wealth. And then that person's income becomes, when they spend it, it becomes your income. So this is a positive multiplier. And there is evidence as you talk about, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala likes to see the bounty upon his servant. So, you know, there is nothing wrong. In fact, not only is there nothing wrong with spending, spending is good. But the, 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 the thing that's bad is this excessiveness towards overproduction and over uh, resource extraction, which is unsustainable. That's the problem because the capitalist system is so reliant on this exponential growth that it just cannot compete. Uh, sorry, it cannot protect the environment and sustain itself at the rate at which it needs to grow in order to evade some of these uh, negative effects which occur to it, um, such as the, I mentioned, the, um, the overburden of debt, the inability of the interest-based monetary system to survive, you know, the, the burden of uh, uh, sovereign debt grows when you just have money growing without the growth of goods. Um, so it has to grow at a very exponential rate, whereas the Islamic economic system doesn't have to grow. It just has to grow sufficiently based on the needs of, the, of you know, the consumers. So there is no imperative as such, because if it doesn't grow, it may shrink, it may contract, because people may drop down to more basic needs, and it's not going to go into a tailspin like the capitalist system. So I think consumerism is the day, as somebody put it succinctly, it's buying things you don't need with money you don't have, i.e. On, on the credit card. So buying things you don't need for money, with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. You know, and that's not a really appealing way to live your life because life has got greater goals than this animalistic type of existence where you're just running after your desires. So in Islam, I don't think, you know, there'll be this sort of gluttonous uh, view towards consumption of Yes, by all means, if there is a genuine uh, aspect of that product which is good, then by all means it should be produced. And there's nothing wrong with that excessiveness uh, that will not be there. And um, that station between the two extremes is the correct station for, for there to be. And remember, 
you know, there's going to be lots and lots of things going on in our economic system. Planting trees, uh, not excessively deforesting uh, the Earth's population. I mean, the Amazon, for example, uh, there's a reason why it's called the lungs of the planet. Something like 20%, I can't remember the figure, of the world of the Earth's oxygen is produced in the Amazon rainforest. When that Amazon rainforest has been to pay Brazil's debts, by paying back money that was never even earned in the first place. If you understand the way the banking system works, money is just produced by typing the keys into a keyboard. And that's how commercial banks generate money. You know, it's not the, the central bank. The Bank of England doesn't generate the lion's share of the money. It's, um, it's commercial banks when they issue loans. So then they go and run after the people who are so-called indebted to them and, and force those countries to chop down trees and create a, such a disaster for the whole planet. You know, you're not going to have that in the Islamic economic system because you don't have this money, uh, this ma magic money tree which just creates debts. And there was an interesting um, case many years ago. I think it was 1968 in, I think it was Minnesota. I think the same place where um, Floyd George, uh, George Floyd, uh, yeah, George Floyd was uh, executed. Uh, there was a court case where somebody had um, uh, was unable to pay their mortgage, and the bank moved in to repossess a foreclosure, as they say in the U.S. And the judge ruled, wait a minute, the bank didn't do anything to make, to create this money. It just generated this money on a keyboard. And so, therefore, it doesn't have anything in the contract because in a contract, there needs to be certain conditions like offer and acceptance and what's called in legal speak consideration. It's something that you've both put in in order to create that contract. And the bank hasn't put anything in because typing some digits on a keyboard to generate this guy's loan is not consideration. There's no effort that's gone into that. So the judge ruled that the bank doesn't have a right over this man's property. And suddenly this judge had a, a very strange uh, fishing accident. And, um, you know, um, the rest is history. Um, I, I, you can Google that example. Um, but yeah, it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a very, very well-known one. You know, and, and you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if the banking fraternity knocked this poor judge off because that wasn't the only problem he had after that court case. I think uh, some trumped-up charges were made against him as well to discredit him, which is the way sort of the system protects its uh, deep secrets. So I think sort of, sorry, I've waffled on a bit too long on that one, but it's really uh, growth is uh, healthy, sustainable growth is healthy, and it's a station between the two extremes of being niggardly and being uh, overindulgent. Zakhla, uh, Brother Subhan actually, um, Subhan Malik actually asked this question. I think he pretty much answered it, but uh, because he asked the question, I'll just repeat it. I was reading an article about the devastate, devastation of the trees in the Amazon. My understanding is they can't be replaced. My question is, is this correct? And how do we overcome this issue under the Khilafah? I think he pretty much... Uh, answered most of that question. Uh, would you like to add anything to that, Sabah? Sorry, they can't be replaced. Uh, yeah, he says that... Well, the, species uh, that go extinct. Yeah, that's right. He says that the certain ones can't be replaced. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, this I said species. Species once they get extinct, they you know I gave the example of you know um, the the gastric brooding frog, uh, but there are many many other examples. You know you've got you know um, studies that could be done on polar bears. Uh, you know polar bears are able to eat so much food and store it um, with and drop their metabolism down without getting the type of type two diabetes that we get. And that could be very valuable insight into, you know, hospital patients who, you know, um, don't move much and eat a lot of food and they develop diabetes and all of these problems. So there's lots and lots to be gained from the animal kingdom uh, uh, for our own medical knowledge to further the welfare of humanity, which is being lost. And these species are dying. I mean, uh, I, I don't, again, I'm not a scientist. But, you know, if you, you Google how many species become extinct every single day, your jaw will drop, literally, about the number of species that are, you know, it's in the hundreds, if not the thousands of species which are being, you know, we just hear about, you know, the dodo, but, you know, that's just one. You know, so many other species become extinct. And, you know, that has a very damaging effect on the food chain because, um, you know, if all the insects in the world were to die, all life on this earth would be dead, would be gone within 50 years. But um, one speaker was saying that if all humans were to die, within the same period of time, the whole world would flourish. You know, the whole ecosystem would flourish, nature would flourish, and there would be no need for the human being. So, you know, we need to really uh, take a step back and really talk about, you know, what some of the real drivers of this uh, model are that are which mean that, you know, it's systemically unable to salvage itself. You know, it's systemically, it's got this growth imperative. Uh, you know, it's embedded growth imperative, EGI. That's the, the, the acronym I'd like to bring. This embedded growth imperative, which means it has to keep growing aggressively, aggressively. And, you know, people are competing, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. I just need to get that, you know, extra fancy BMW just to show that I'm still better than the Joneses. You know, this, this uh, if you're interested, there was a guy called uh, Weblen, a turn of the century, uh, um, 20th century, and he was an economist, and he, he wrote a book called The Theory of the Leisure Class, and he spoke about this idea of conspicuous consumption, and he said, everything you buy has two uh, basic types of utility. He said the good has a has the serviceability of the good, i.e. the good's ability to meet your needs. So in terms of a car, the ability of the car to take you from A to B. And the other aspect he called the honorific aspect, the, the ability of the good to bestow some kind of social status upon you. And that's something that people are chasing. So they you know they when they go to buy that extra fashionable brand, you know, to some extent. I'm not saying to 100%. To some extent, you know, that Louis Vuitton bag may be bought because, you know, there's more quality. But how much of it is because of the social status that the buyer is seeking as a result of buying that particular bag versus, oh, I'm going to spend £2,000 because I want this bag to last a bit longer. You know, you could buy a very, very good bag for, you know, 10% of the price and maybe you have to replace it once before you know you replace the Louis Vuitton bag. 
you know, that's really where you know that type of competition and driving buying more and more than you need is coming from, which is not really healthy, and it's not healthy from a human uh, emotion and from a psychological perspective because we know that materialism never makes you feel happy. It never brings contentment. You're always chasing your tail. It's like, you know, um, many years ago, a brother put the example of, you know, if there's a donkey and, you know, you tie a carrot to the donkey uh, with a stick and you dangle in front of the donkey, it's going to keep running after the carrot and it'll get exhausted and fall down dead one day. And that's really this game of excessive consumerism and thinking that, you know, you're going to get happy by buying the latest gadget. It's not necessary and it's not um, necessary um, and it's not really a good use of the world's resources because, you know, so much of the world's um, energy is going into producing things which are not vital. They're, they're very high luxury goods, whereas not enough resources going into producing food and things that the, the basic uh, needs for so many people who are dying because there's no clean water, you know, there's uh, airborne diseases, there's no uh, access to um, uh, medicine because the big pharmaceutical companies, again, another thing which is going to be in the state sector and under an Islamic system, the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the um, jungle of the private sector, um, so that drugs get developed based on what is needed, not what the rich uh, people, you know, need at the cost of what the poor people need. So, you know, that's just another avenue to, to, to take the discussion in terms of the whole pharmaceutical sector and how resources are not being put into the things which basic, basically are needed by so many people. Um, you, may, you mentioned uh, your, uh, during your talk and also in uh, your last uh, answer to the question, the issue of balance and the issue of uh, resources. And it reminded me of the ayah in Surah uh, Hijab, um, verse 19 to 21, where Allah SWT says, And the earth we have spread out like a carpet, set thereon mountains firm and immovable, and produced therein all kinds of things in due balance. And we have provided therein means of subsistence, and for you and for those for whose sustenance you do not uphold, and there is not a thing but its sources and treasures inexhaustible are with us, but we only send down thereof in due and ascertainable measures. So Allah SWT very clearly uh, tells us about uh, the resources given to us there. Inshallah, next question is Brother Idris. Um, when the Khilafah is first established, it will surely need to construct heavy manufacturing plants nuclear facilities and will need to extract material resources. It will need to do all of this on a grand scale in order to catch up with other industrialized countries. Won't all this cause huge catastrophic environmental destruction? How can the Khilafah industrialize without causing environmental destruction? Right, let me just um, go to some notes here. Yeah, I had some notes on this question, but I probably uh, will struggle to find it. But basically, 
what I'm talking about is is the sort of medium to long term um, approach. But I agree. Initially, there will be um, you know no way that we can do this mass industrialization on green energy, and we're not really going to be keen on the nuclear route because it's such a dangerous, precarious uh, route to go down um, in terms of. Uh, being able to safeguard the nuclear waste, which comes as a result. But nuclear energy could give us that a boost in terms of the energy needs to do heavy industry, uh, you know, shipbuilding, you know, oil rigs, all of the, the sort of heavy industry we need. So there will be an initial uh, spike, probably, in terms of how much carbon dioxide we, as a, as a, as a newly established society state, uh, will be putting out there. But there'll be lots of things to offset that as well. Let's let's remember that. So from the private sector perspective, is there going to be that rampant consumerism? Is there not going to be a system to plant trees? Because trees uh, absorb CO2, which then reverses climate change. So, you know, there's a lot of offsets we can do. So I would say, yes, I agree in the, in the short term, you know, there's going to be a big drive in terms of the priorities of the state for industry, but there's lots and lots of offsets, um, including, you know, the way the citizenry will behave. So they will be tolerating, you know, less. They're not going to say, oh, I have to have cotton. You know, they will perhaps be tolerant of, you know, synthetic fibers um, until we get to the point where, you know, we can, you know, um, build our economy up to the level. It will be hardship initially. So the priority has to be on on creating that ideological strength, that uh, basic infrastructure, uh, which is going to be carbon and fossil fuel intensive, I have no doubt. Um, but like I said, there'll be lots of offsets. So, you know, planting trees. And also, when we do things like uh, create oil rigs, um, one of the things that happens when in the West, when they create uh, oil rigs, uh, and again, I'm not, I'm not a scientist or I'm not an engineer, so forgive me if I'm wrong with the terminology. But you know, gases like methane gases are very, very highly potent uh, greenhouse gases, much more than carbon dioxide. Uh, you know, and you know, those things generally get pumped into the atmosphere uh, uh, without any filters. So when we create oil rigs, we will make sure that we use uh, the, the appropriate filters because. Oil production is a public property. It's not for profit. So there's no race to the bottom to make sure that you, you cut to the bottom line um, and you avoid these um, what are considered unnecessary safety measures if they're going to eat into your profits. So, you know, a lot of these design, these designs can be put in, which can mitigate the initial burst in the use of fossil fuels, which I think will inevitably, as the speak as the questioner has raised, uh, be there uh, in the first, you know, maybe 10, 20 years of development. Uh, Brother Rizwan asks a question. Um, the top five global risks in terms of likelihood for 2020 are all environmental. They include extreme weather events, failure of climate change, mitigation and adaptation, environmental damage and disasters such as oil spills and radioactive contamination, major biodiversity loss and natural disasters such as earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, and geomagnetic storms. 
The World Economic Forum says politicians must work to avoid economic and political polarization and instead encourage collective efforts to tackle environmental issues. It suggests collaboration between world leaders, businesses and policymakers is needed more than ever to stop severe threats developing. How can the Khilafah address these concerns and provide an alternative effective policy to tackle these burning environmental issues? Well, lots of people come up with these wonderful plans. Today I was looking at um, global cooperation for avoid you know tax evasion and how you know the rules regulatory frameworks need to change to make it much more difficult for companies to you know um, you know shift their profits to low tax havens um, but these are just ideas and you know these are like um, you know these um, sort of quangos come up with these nice proposals but at the end of the day money talks the capitalist system is a system which which and the language is money to expect you know it's like expecting the fox to guard the hen hut you know the fox is not going to guard the hen hut the fox is going to you know get into the hen hut so similarly you know the the money men the, the power the influence will not really allow any system to be established which really disturbs the status quo in any significant way, whether that's to do with the banking um, setup in terms of the fiat-based currency, whether that's to do with reducing economic growth, you know, whether that's to do with, you know, um, any of these sort of like measures that we spoke about, there they just will not be the political will to tackle these issues um, in any way, shape or form. So it's really just a pipe dream. It's just it makes for good um, documentation. It makes for good. Um, it makes for good um, reading and good brochures. And look, we're doing something. You know, stay confident in the capitalist system. Something's going to happen, but it doesn't really work. And there's no evidence that it, it can work because the politicians are too closely aligned to business. You know, this is how it works. You know, lobbying. The way lobbying works is. Big business are the people who write the laws. I mean, look at the tax laws. You know, look at Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world, talks openly about, you know, the rich are the ones who wrote the tax laws. You know, they wrote the laws to enable all these ways of getting around the tax, shifting the profits out. You know, why does Starbucks not pay any profit? Because they shift all their profits out uh, using accounting um, uh, tricks and what have you. So, you know, this is no different to the environment. The environment is is exactly the same. You know, nothing's really going to change. And I talked about some of the solutions. You know, they don't make any sense. You know, they just make you feel good. They make you feel as an activist. Um, you know, I was watching this um, this guy called um, what's his name um, Jordan Peterson today. It was an old sort of question time sort of thing. And this lady said, "Look, you know." There's all these problems out there, global warming, and you know your solutions are not relevant at the individual level, you know. And he said, look, at the end of the day, lots and lots of people they don't want to take real responsibility. They just want to join some kind of movement to show, look, we're doing something. We're part of Greenpeace, or you know, we're we're trying to show, um, you know, that we're making a difference. You know, I've yet to see anything that can really 
disturb the sort of status quo and create real, real change, because that would mean the end of interest-based money. It would mean a system which is built on, say, gold and silver rather than a system built on paper money, which, which is wonderful because everyone likes that system. The multinationals love that system because they can say to the government, look, we've got weapons, buy our weapons, go and invade Iraq, go and invade many countries, and don't worry about the money, just print the money, just issue bonds, and you've got all this money because money is just paper. We'll get all the money, we'll convert the money into something real like land or real estate or you know something which is going to be a store of value like gold, and then we'll let the money flow into the system and create inflation, and then the people you know, who are not as fortunate as us, you know, the common man will then foot the bill because the, the value of his savings will be eroded, the value of his money, the, the value of his pay will be eroded. So, you know, basically we are subsidizing the rich in the system, which is never going to change. You know, it's never going to change. So I think, you know, only by having a fundamental redesign of the system at a root and branch level can this catastrophe be averted. And the sad thing is, that is not really on the table as far as the global discussion. We need to take that onto the table because on the table, it's is carbon capture better than carbon trading? Is nuclear energy better than fossil fuels? Should we recycle more? This is just skirting around the edge. This is not really going to solve the problem. So I think that third option has to be put on the table. And after you know Brexit and you know, COVID sort of die down, this is going to be really the discussion of the next decade, at least, or, or, or more, it's going to grow. So I think we need to really get our foot in the door, get our arguments clear and crisp, and take that argument out there, so that in 20 years time, we will be having the same discussion, and we'll be talking about how, how much traction this third alternative view is gaining in mainstream you know, academic academia and coffee um, coffee house discussions and you know student union discussions and university lecture theatres. You know, that's where we need to get it. So I think I've put a lot of information out there. I've just touched on it at, on a lot of points, and I think this is something we need to really get our head around. Um, if if anyone's interested, I do a blog. I've got a couple of blogs. One of them is on economics and. Uh, it's called Breakthrough Economics. So that's breakthroughaconomics.blogspot.co.uk. Uh, I haven't really been updating it that much, but it's got some articles uh, which which hopefully will be useful if you want to really go and start to discuss how Islamic economics can really deliver on the goods. Because when you're going to get into this discussion, people are going to say, Islamic economics, don't. it's not practical, it won't work. You know, gold doesn't work anymore. You know, gold cannot cater for the amount of trade we've got now. So what I what I like to do and what I've studied over the years is how to counteract a lot of these criticisms of the Islamic economic system and show how it can actually work. So, you know, there's, there's that. There's also the, uh, there's a Facebook page called Economy Dissected, where myself and brother Jamal Harwood regularly uh, put um, uploads on there. Which is which is on YouTube as well now, um, which again show how these intricate solutions can work. And I think we need to really start looking at this and not thinking this is all economic jargon. And you know I'm not really into that stuff. 
you know, I, I don't do economics as a profession. You know, my work is completely unrelated to economics, but I felt that, you know, this was an area where more work was needed. And, you know, I started to read around it and understand it more. And, you know, now I'm at the point where, you know, I do feel I understand it sufficiently well to, to present Islam uh, solutions in a holistic way. I was uh, just going to remind the brothers that I've put a little uh, comment on the Friday Circle Facebook page uh, about a book that the brothers in Denmark have produced um, in line with the, uh, what we've been talking about tonight. Uh, the little booklet is entitled The Environmental Problems, Causes and Islam Solutions. Uh, so I've put the link uh, there uh, online and uh, also I'll be putting the link for uh, some of the suggestions you just made just now so far as about the YouTube site for Economy Dissected. And I think you said your own blog spot was Breakthrough uh, Economics. Breakthrough, it's all one word. So break, Breakthrough Economics. Yeah. Um, Blogspot.co.uk. And you know, send questions to it. I mean, there aren't many questions uh, on it. So, you know, send questions. Most people just come and read by look at the, the, the numbers. But, you know, it'd be good to get some debate going on there so people can sort of like see the discussion unfold because it's only through debate and discussion that these points become more and more clear yeah definitely definitely um inshallah brothers and sisters we're coming near the end of today's uh, session so if you've got any last questions or comments you'd like to make you'd like to put them on to the uh, chat inshallah I had, a, uh, I had a, a question in my mind uh, from sort of playing a little bit of the devil's advocate here uh, so far. Um, so in terms of what we're saying here is that uh, the Western ideology, i.e. that of secular capitalism, um, is uh, uh, based uh, on a system of growth which has uh, caused the rape and pillage of the earth um, rather than the uh, reuse of resources or the better management of resources. Um, then couldn't somebody then say that uh, what you're suggesting is that uh, then we shouldn't enjoy the things that uh, Allah SWT has given to us on this earth um, you know these, these things are surely uh, there for our use so why, why should we not enjoy them the way we want to no I mean I don't I don't I didn't say that we don't go after buying things and in fact um, this circular flow of income and expenditure is something which is not only um, good, but it's necessary because if people stop spending, and they, if you look at all, a lot of the rules in Islam, they're actually designed to ensure this circulation of wealth. So, for example, the rule against hoarding of currency, for example, um, is because if the money is pulled out of circulation, people can't trade. So they can't, buying and selling can't take place. And that's a bad thing. And there's punishment against that. You know, the hoarding of money is also prevented through zakat because there's a disincentive to just hold money because you know it's going to be taxed away and many other rules for example not using farmland after three years it will be taken away so the whole idea and as expressed in surah al-hashr verse 7 about allah warning us not to allow the wealth to just be a circuit amongst a few is that wealth should be circulated they should be spending but what we're against is this <clears throat> excessiveness 
where you go beyond, to use the Stockholm uh, Resilience Center's terminology, the, the planetary boundaries, i.e. the sustainability of the current Earth's ecosystem for economic growth. So if you go beyond those boundaries, so excessive use of aerosols that deplete the ozone layer or excessive deforestation because more and more people want, you know, uh, another pair of jeans every six months as opposed to, you know, um, you know, way, way above just because the, the new fashion are coming in. You have to buy more and more and more and, you know, the unhealthy farming of foods, which, you know, are, you know, like chicken. I mean, the amount of chicken that are killed every day, I think, if you put a chicken uh, wingspan to wingspan, um, I think it goes a couple of times around the earth. That's how many chickens are slaughtered every single day. That's one statistic. I haven't checked that, but that's something I read. And I wouldn't be surprised you know, that's how many chickens are killed every single day. That's not normal because then now you're creating food, which is not really food anymore. You're growing these things using chemicals. You're pumping cows with hormones to increase, you know, um, milk production and causing, you know, all kinds of uh, diseases in terms of the milk, which is damaging for our health. That's what I'm talking about, that excessiveness, that uh, unsustainable level of consumption of goods and services and, and unhealthy food, which is not there. You know, that's the sort of thing that Islam is against. Uh, and that, those are the sort of things which sort of like really rock the Earth's um, system to to lead it towards these unsustainable levels of uh, uh, these violation of the planetary boundaries is is the correct terminology to use that particular Swedish not-for-profit institute's terminology. So, you know, um, that that's really what we're saying. It's not against uh, enjoying uh, the fruit you know, of this earth. It's pushing it to the level where it's unsustainable because the world's population can grow many, many times over, um, but not at the rate at which the world uh, is consuming uh, currently the world's resources. And just to give you some statistic uh, to show where things are going, um, I just paraphrase. So if the whole world was consuming at the rate that we are in the industrial world. So if sub-Saharan Africa, if, you know, the whole world, you know, the poor countries, you know, we're all consuming the way consumption is happening in North America and Western Europe, for example, then in the year 2070, so what's that, 50 years' time, with projected global, global population at over 9 billion, with a 3% growth in GDP, which is very modest. I mean, if you look at China, it's been growing at double digits, and so is India, and Brazil probably somewhere near there. You know, these BRIC uh, nations, which are the up-and-coming uh, industrial nations, you know, if it's only 3%, if we're only going to grow at 3%, but we all consume at the, way, at the rate at which we do in Western Europe, then the output level would need to be 60 times what it is today. So we need to produce 60 times as much as we produce today. Now you tell me, is that normal? Is that normal consumption? That is pillaging the earth. 
That is sucking dry the earth way beyond where it can be naturally replenished. That's the problem. You know, the world's population should be able to grow to 9 billion, and we, we should be able to live a very comfortable life with half of what we produce today. That's the main point of my message. It's not that we shouldn't enjoy it. It's the fact that it can't be sustained at the rate at which it's being sustained at the moment. The amount of gadgets we just throw away because we think it's no good. So the amount of you know things that we just go through because we, we just wastefulness, the, the wastefulness and the uh, you know that's really the issue. And that statistic really drives home that we would need to produce um, 60 times. So this is if the whole world by the year 2070, it grows to 3% and consumes at the rate at which we do in the Western Western Europe, 60 times as much as we produce will need to be produced. Can you imagine the effect on the environment? You know, it'd be like walking, you know, uh, it'd be like walking in a garage with your exhaust fully on and the windows haven't been open in 10 minutes. That's, you know, forget about Beijing and, you know, the pollution, the smog. You know, you'd be like choking to death at that rate. So I think this is really the, the, the trajectory of capitalist management in terms of the Earth's uh, finite resources and this unrelenting exponential appetite for excessive consumption way above what is necessary to live in a healthy and balanced lifestyle. So really, that's really the sort of like the, um, the iceberg is there. We're going to really go, we're heading into the iceberg. And we need to really warn people in a, in a balanced way to show what some drivers are of this current uh, trajectory and why Islam is free of these drivers and how it can sustain itself uh, free of these drivers and how it actually proactively seeks to protect the environment and it's not overrun by commercial interests which handcuff policymakers to take decisions which are based on lobbying and based on you know where the money uh, is pushing them. So really, that's fundamentally uh, something which cannot be secured within the current paradigm. And that's really where we need to make take the debate to show people, look, you're flogging a dead horse. If you think you're going to do anything realistic by tweaking capitalism, then you're dreaming. It just It's just so naive. It's just so naive. And if you want to carry on, join Greenpeace so you can go to sleep at night without cognitive dissonance, that, oh, look, at least I'm doing something about it. And all those children in Africa who are dying because of uh, airborne diseases and un- non-access to clean drinking water, at least I'm doing something so I don't feel guilty anymore, then, you know, then be my guest. But it's not really going to fundamentally change the problem. So that's really, I think, where the debate needs to go. And I hope with my cobbled together uh, presentation, which darted from one point to another, so that helps to like push the debate in that direction. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of today's session. Um, is there anything you just wanted to finish off with, Not really. I think um, it's the same sort of message being made from different angles. And I think, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, like I said, I'm not a, I'm not a, um, an environmental expert by any stretch. You know, I've just got uh, I'm coming to this from an economics perspective, um, you know, and dealing with some of the sort of counter arguments like, 
you know, oh, we've only got data since 1850, so how can you say we've got global warming? Well, there is something called proxy data where you can look at things like, you know, the tree rings and work out what the environment and the climate was like, you know, many hundred years ago. And even further back, when you look at trapped air within, you know, ice, um, sheets of ice in the Arctic, you can see what the weather was like thousands and millions and perhaps even billions of years ago. So, you know, it's it's easy to just dismiss it by using some of these superficial arguments that, you know, there's no data since 1850, so it's all just made up to scare us. Um, but, you know, you've got to really dig through and shift, sift through the nonsense and come, come to some real accurate assessment of what is actually going on. And like I said at the beginning, I'm not here to settle the debate uh, on how much uh, man-made climate change versus natural climate change, but certainly thinking of things like unprecedented levels of biodiversity loss and the growth of these novel viruses is definitely to do with the way we're living under a capitalist system. I'd like to thank Zafar for your presentation and Zafar for the brothers and sisters who ask questions and your comments and Zafar for attending today as well. I think it's an essential topic for us as Muslims that we're not led into the trap of the Western environmentalist activism, but rather that we actually look to Islam uh, to solve these problems. Um, modern science itself has actually been contaminated by uh, uh, secular capitalism as well, uh, with a link with the vested interests of the companies that you mentioned earlier, Safad, in terms of the pharmaceutical industries and also obviously um, military industrial complex, etc. And um, we should always be looking uh, to the guidance from Allah SWT. And uh, Allah SWT has given us this earth uh, with all its resources. And Allah SWT mentions many times in the Quran. Uh, for us to think about the world around us, uh, look at and examine the world around us. And uh, in the natural world around us, Allah SWT has given us uh, many solutions to problems um, of the uh, world around us. And we don't necessarily need to follow uh, a Western construct of science uh, either to actually solve our problems. Uh, rather, we need to look to see how Allah SWT has created the things around us and how these problems are solved. Um, but to do this, obviously... Um, uh, as you purported during your talk there, Safar, um, that we need a system in place, um, an Islamic system that actually encourages this um, type of thinking and actually uh, educates and produces an in industry and a society which actually works to uh, be guardians of the earth as opposed to uh, raping and pillaging the earth. Um, in essence, this world order that is in charge of the world today is not fit for purpose. And really and truly, we need an Islamic world order to come back and uh, bring justice back to this earth, inshallah ta'ala. So, jazakallah um, for everybody, to everybody for attending today. And inshallah, uh, we shall reconvene again uh, next Friday. Jazakallah khair. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaykum alaykum wa rahmatullahi Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends 
to also visit islampodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sirah, and much more. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, and Sirah are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com.